Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. As you're finding your way to that passage, I do want to remind you of something that's very important, because this morning we're only going to be taking a look at, I don't know, five or six verses. And I think it's important for us to take such a short section because of where we're going and what we need to talk about. But there's always this danger of losing the big picture of the book of Hebrews. Let's remind ourselves that the letter written to these Christians from a Jewish background in the first century was written to encourage discouraged believers who, for several different reasons, some of it because of cultural pressure, some of it because of persecution, they felt like giving up. They felt like either turning their backs on Jesus or we could say easing off on the fervor and the sincerity of their Christian life. And this letter was written to persuade these believers to keep going strong. With that in mind, let's take a look now. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to stand in reverence to the word of the Lord. As I read our text for this morning, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4 and ending at verse 9. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age have come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Father, would you please make our hearts alive to your living word? And would you speak to us by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit right here, right now? We believe that you will in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a passage that we come to in making our way through the letter of the Hebrews. And it's a passage of some controversy. Because it touches on many theological issues that are of concern of some, to, to many people. But this is one thing that I want to make very clear. I think it's important for us as we approach any passage like this, especially a controversial passage, that we be careful that we don't try to mold the passage so that it fits into a theological bent or perspective that we have. That we don't treat the scriptures like wax or Play-Doh that we shape and fit in to a preconceived notion. Rather, to the best of our ability, and I'd say it's probably imperfect ability, but to the best of our ability, we do the best we can to let the scriptures speak for themselves instead of trying to conform them to a system of theology. So with that in mind, let's take a look now at verses 4, 5, and 6 of Hebrews chapter 6, where he says... For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. It's a pretty dramatic beginning to verse 4, don't you think? For it is impossible. Now, both in the English rendering this and the ancient manuscripts that the text is taken from, that word impossible is placed in a position of of, of, um, emphasis. The idea is meant to be emphasized that it is impossible. It is without possibility, not merely difficult. And sometimes we use impossible sort of in a figurative or metaphorical sense in that way, don't we? Oh, it's impossible that this could happen. Impossible that that could happen. We're really, we don't mean actually impossible. We mean very difficult or very, very difficult. But yet, how should we regard this as very difficult or as impossible? Well, if you take a look at the book of Hebrews and other places where this word impossible is used, I think you get an indication of this. For example, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. Now, does that mean very, very hard for God to lie? Or impossible? I think it means impossible. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it says, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. Really, really hard or impossible? I think impossible. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says that it is impossible to please God without faith. Again, I think you come back to the same thing again and again. This isn't talking about something that's very difficult. It's talking about something that's genuinely impossible. And what is it that it is impossible to do? If you notice, it says later on in verse 6, it says that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, friends, I got to say, as someone who reads the Bible and hopes to study it carefully and loves to explain it to other people, I find this startling. This makes me sit up in my chair straight when I'm studying. I say, wait a minute. What the writer of the Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is telling all of us is there are some people out there. It is impossible for them to find repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that somewhat disturbing because one of the things I love to emphasize and that I believe that the Bible emphasizes a lot is that the door of repentance is open. If you're willing to turn from your sin, if you're willing to come to Jesus and have forgiveness of sins and put your trust in who he is and what he did for you, the door is wide open. Yet in some sense, in some understanding, what he's telling us here in very strong terms is that there are some people for whom this repentance is impossible. Well, who are these people? I think that they are marked by two significant characteristics. The first characteristic is this. They have impressive spiritual experiences. Did you see that list that he rattled off there in verses four and five? I'll read it through again, and then we'll take a look at it piece by piece. Ready? Who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's five different characteristics. And if you put them all together, that's pretty impressive. Look at the three that are mentioned in verse 4. First of all, it says that they were once enlightened. The idea behind that is just simply what we would say in English. Light has come into them. Light has come upon them. Where once they were in darkness, now they have light. 
Secondly, it says that they have tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, it's been an experience that they have taken in within themselves. And I know that some people might approach that and say, well, tasted means just to bite something and then maybe spit it out or something like that. Uh, Maybe a light experience. And I agree. It could be understood that way. However, when you take a look at the other places in the book of Hebrews where he uses that idea of tasted, it's a very strong use such as in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, where it says that Jesus tasted death. He didn't take just a nibble. He fully subjected himself under the power of death and then triumphed over it in resurrection. The third thing mentioned in verse 4 is it says that they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And friends, this is a pretty strong phrase. I can't tell you I know exactly what this means because it's a completely unique phrase in the New Testament. Jesus never used it in the Gospels. Paul never used it in his letters. James and Peter, etc. They don't use it. And so while we don't know exactly precisely what this phrase means, it means to have some kind of sharing with, some kind of fellowship, some kind of participation with the Holy Spirit. And then you go to the two characteristics that are mentioned in verse 5, where it says they have tasted the good word of God. This means that they have experienced the goodness of God's word, and they have seen that goodness at work in them. And then finally, in verse 5, it says that they have experienced something of the powers of the age to come. That there are supernatural, spiritual experiences that have touched their life. So when you take this list in totality, once enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, all five of them together, if you take that list, what do you make of such a person? I'll tell you what I make of them. I might just put them in leadership here in the congregation. I mean, I got to say, that's a pretty impressive list. If somebody were to be put in some position of servanthood or leadership here in our congregation and have some, you know, place of, of note, well, we would want to know, well, what, what kind of uh, spiritual maturity do they have? What that kind of character that they have? And if somebody could rattle off those five things about them, my heart might be at ease. I might say, well, that's, that's pretty good. But look, here's kind of the difficulty. Pastors and teachers and Bible scholars and seemingly everyone has an opinion on this particular passage, whether or not this passage describes someone who is a true Christian or someone who is not a true Christian. Does this describe a true believer or a false believer? And so this is a matter of great big controversy, whether this person is genuinely a Christian or simply thinks of themselves as a Christian. Now, I suppose in this, it's helpful for me to define just a little bit what a true Christian is. And of course, that's a pretty big subject. I can't go into it in depth, but let me deal with it just in this beginning idea. A true Christian, I think, needs to be understood in this sense. It's not only, so to speak, receiving salvation in this sense. Let's just say that, you know, here's like a ticket to heaven. Okay, well, I'm handing out tickets to heaven. Who wants one? Well, I want one. I'll take it. Great. I got the ticket to heaven. I put it in my pocket. Great. Everything's good. Great. I got the ticket to heaven. I go on living my life. Okay. In a biblical understanding, that person falls short of what we would call a true Christian experience. 
Because even though being a Christian, it definitely involves and it begins by receiving something freely given by God. There's no doubt about that. God freely gives it and we freely receive it by faith. Yet the biblical understanding is something like this, that once we receive this and we take it into our life, there is a transforming effect of God's Holy Spirit upon our lives. And if I genuinely hold this ticket to heaven, so to speak, there's going to be some transforming work of God upon me. Now, look, we understand this. The changes don't come all at once. And there's some of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time, and we recognize he's still got some changing to do in me. All right, well, maybe it is just me. Maybe it's not any of you, but it is me. He's got some changing to do in me. We recognize that the changes don't come all at once. And we also recognize that the changes are not complete until we come to be in glory with Jesus himself. That's when the changes will be complete. Yet, nevertheless, being a Christian is more than just receiving a ticket to heaven. It's having once received it. God works a transforming power upon my life. Now, this is what we understand biblically. That it is possible for a person to have significant spiritual experiences and still not genuinely belong to Jesus Christ. Are you aware of that? I mean, if you look in the pages of the Bible, it's actually quite impressive and maybe just a little bit scary. I mean, Jesus um, mentioned that there would be people who did many spectacular things. And on the last day that they would come to him and they would say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these many things in your name? And what would be his response to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. I also look at another class of people in the scriptures that really, frankly, sort of frightens me. And I think in a good way, it warns me. Let's say that not so much frightens me. It warns me. And those people are at a very impressive group in the New Testament. This is what they did. They energetically evangelized. They impressively prayed. They made rigorous religious commitments. They strictly and they carefully tithed. They honored religious traditions and they practiced fasting regularly. Do you know who I'm talking about? The Pharisees of Jesus's day. Impressive religious experiences. Absolutely. A heart truly changed by Jesus Christ? No. So it's, a, it's possible for someone to have a pedigree of spiritual experience without actually having a transformed heart by Jesus Christ. But yet, we have to come back and look at this from the only perspective that we have, and that's a human perspective. Friends, if I see somebody who has the five things mentioned that the writer of Hebrews mentioned in verses 4 and 5, I look at their life, and by all appearance to me, they're a believer. I'm sorry, I don't have the x-ray spectrograph binoculars that can look into their soul and actually see the status of their soul. I don't have any of those. I don't think God gave you any of those out. But all we can talk about is what we can see. And by all appearance, those people have impressive spiritual experiences and we would regard them as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. So that's the one thing we know about these people. Number one, they at least have the appearance of being followers of Jesus Christ. Number two, look at this in verse six. <laughs> we know they fall away. It says there in verse six, if they fall away. 
Now, I put emphasis on that when I said that on the word away, because I think that there is a very important distinction to make in our understanding of biblical truth between falling and falling away. I think it's possible for a man or a woman who really loves God to fall to stumble into some kind of sin, to seize upon some kind of doubt, to conform to the world in some way or another, to fall, yet to pick themselves back up again, God's grace working in them, and to continue on the way. But then there's other people, they just don't only seem to fall, they seem to fall away. I like the way that Proverbs 24 illustrates this. Verse 16 says this, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. I mean, if I could put that sort of into New Testament language, you could say this, a righteous man may fall and get back up, but the wicked fall away. And if one does fall away from Jesus, look what the writer of the Hebrews says. He says, there is no possibility of restoring them again to impertinence. Now, why? Is it because their sin is too bad? I wonder if some people fear that. You know, okay, your sin and your sin and your sin. Okay, that's right. Jesus can deal with that. But your sin over there, forget it. You're gone. It's too big for Jesus. He can't deal with that. No, that's not the idea at all. You see, the idea is they can't find repentance because they are not seeking it in Jesus. They're seeking repentance through religious traditions. They're speak, seeking repentance through what they might do to save themselves. They're seeking repentance in some other way. But I'll tell you this. If you're not seeking repentance in Jesus, it is impossible to restore you unto God. He is the only path of repentance. You could say that this is the difference between a Peter and a Judas. What do I mean by that? Well, you remember these two men from the ministry of Jesus, these two men who were both disciples of Jesus and followed him around as members of the 12. Did not they both betray Jesus? Did not they both turn their backs on Jesus in some way or another? They both betrayed Jesus. They both turned their backs on him. They both denied him in some way or another. Yet Peter was restored. He was restored so much that he was restored back to a sense of leadership among the apostles themselves. Peter was restored, but Judas fulfilled the role that Jesus spoke of him and that he went away and became the son of perdition. Now, what's the difference between the two? Not so much in their sin and not so much in the fact that they both offered some kind of repentance. You know, Peter repented before the Lord. Of course he did. And he was restored. But do you know that Judas offered up a type of repentance? Judas felt terrible about what he did. Horrible. He was so racked with guilt, so racked with shame that the, you know what the Bible says that he did? Then he took that bag of the 30 pieces of silver and he went over to the temple and he cast it into the temple and it was scattered all around. And he said, I don't want anything to do with this blood money. Listen, he was grieved. He went to the temple. It was some kind of a religious act. But I'll tell you what Judas did not do is he did not seek any kind of repentance in Jesus. He sought it in ceremony. He sought it in his own grief. He thought maybe that his own sorrow could atone for his sins, but none of that could do it. Only Jesus. And because his repentance wasn't found in Jesus, it was impossible for that so-called repentance to restore him. 
See, I think that this difficult passage is best understood in the context of the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 6. You see, remember those two verses? We studied them a couple weeks ago, and I would recommend to you the tape or the video of it. You can see it on our website. You see, there, the writer of the Hebrews meant that if they retreated back to Judaism, back to the safe common ground of common doctrines, so that they wouldn't face the stress of persecution or social pressure against them anymore, but all that sort of safe, common, comfortable ground would do them no good, that they had to live a distinctively Christian life. And so I just imagine one of these Old Testament, excuse me, one of these New Testament followers of Jesus from a uh, Jewish background saying, well, you know, they hassle me for praying to Jesus. They hassle me for considering the Messiah, but I want to repent of my sins. I'll just go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Do you see what the writer of the Hebrews is saying? Saying, don't you think that that kind of repentance is going to do anything for you? That kind of repentance, it's impossible to restore you to God that way because you got to turn to Jesus or you can't turn at all. And do you see that this really makes sense then? What is it that is impossible to renew them to repentance? It's possible to renew somebody to repentance if they don't come to Jesus himself with that repentance. And the message to these Christians who felt like giving up was clear. If you continue on with Jesus, excuse me, if you don't continue on with Jesus, don't suppose that you're going to find salvation by going on with the ideas or the experiences that Christianity and Judaism happen to share. If you are not trusting in Jesus, you have no grounds for confidence at all. There's no safety in a Christian life that's not distinctively Christian. Now, this helps explain why they can't repent. And the idea is not... If you fall away, you can't ever come back to Jesus, which, by the way, sort of interestingly, at least to me, that's how it was understood at some phases in church history. There were times in the church where people sincerely wanted to come back to Jesus and the church told them, "Nope, forget it. Sorry. Here's your ticket to hell. Do not pass. Go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Go right there. I think that's a tragedy and a misunderstanding of the scripture. But rather, if their repentance isn't focused in Jesus, it's impossible. No, the idea is not you can't ever come back to Jesus. But the idea is if you turn your back on Jesus, don't expect to find salvation anywhere else. Not even in the practice of religion apart from the fullness of Jesus. It'll never do you any good. And friends, I think that that's the most simple and straightforward way to understand this difficult passage. But I think in really grabbing a hold of it, we've got to deal with some Christian cliches that I think muddy the water. And let me say this word about Christian cliches. I am not all in all against some Christian cliches. Sometimes they're very helpful. Sometimes they sort of put a, a handle on something that's good for us to understand. So I'm not against all Christian cliches. Sometimes I'll use them, but sometimes they're not helpful. So let me talk about two Christian cliches, statements that are not found in the Bible, that are commonly spoken among Christians, and I don't think they're particularly helpful, but because they're not in the Bible, I feel very free to criticize them. So here we go. Number one, the phrase is losing your salvation. I don't like that phrase. You know what I don't like about it? First of all, it sounds so casual, doesn't it? Oh, I lost my keys. I lost my wallet. Where's my the salvation? I placed it somewhere. I just don't know where it is. I must have lost it. I must have lost it. And, and, and there's a complication on top of that, isn't it? I mean, 
how is someone who's born again by the spirit of God, how do they get unborn again? Someone who's sealed by the Holy Spirit. How do they get unsealed by the spirit of God? I can't figure those ones out. So I don't like this idea, this phrasing, losing your salvation. And as I said, because it's not a biblical phrase, I feel free to knock that out of my Christian phrase book. I just say, well, I just, it just doesn't interest me. I'm just not going to use that. Here's another Christian cliche that I don't particularly like. Once saved, always saved. I don't like that one either. And let me tell you, there's a few reasons why I don't like it. Number one. It's because to me, when I hear that phrase, it seems to imply that we already possess the entirety of our salvation. Where the Bible says to me and says to all of us very clearly that you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And to me, it's just sort of a a trite misunderstanding of what this business of salvation is all about in our life. But the other thing that I don't like about this, too, is this idea of once saved, always saved. That particular phrase bothers me because to me, it suggests something that we go back to with the ticket, right? Well, I was at junior high camp and I got the ticket. And I haven't given Jesus a recognition since in my life. But man, I got the ticket once with the ticket, always with the ticket, right? Now, look, there's nobody who actually believes that. I mean, even people who believe in the security of the believer, they believe that it's demonstrated by an ongoing walk. But you see, I think that that phrase isn't helpful in understanding this. So I got a proposal. Let's replace some phrases. Let's replace this phrase, losing your salvation. Let's replace it with this, the falling away of the apparent believer. Does this text tell us that someone who is an apparent believer can fall away? It certainly seems like it. That's what the whole warning is engineered towards. So I would rather replace losing your salvation with the idea of the falling away of the apparent believer. Number two, I'd replace the phrase once saved, always saved with this. How about this? Really saved, always saved. Now, I can can dig on that. That's like, yes. I mean, if somebody's really transformed by the spirit of God, then they're secure in that. And and the evidence of the reality of it is proved in their life as they continue to live. I mean, when I think of it in those terms, to me, at least, it's not that complicated. It's actually fairly simple. And with that sort of mentality there in my heart as a pastor, it enables me to minister to people the way that I should. Because I'm very aware that when I speak to people and try to connect with them on the basis of what God needs to do in their life, sometimes I'm speaking to two very different kinds of people, aren't I not? Sometimes I'm speaking to that weak, discouraged believer who who just is so insecure and they wonder, oh, is God going to hang on to me? And I need to come alongside of them and put my arm around them and say, you are so secure in Jesus. Brother, sister, would you please get your eyes off yourself and put them on your Savior? Would you please just put your trust in him and realize that far more important than you holding on to him, he's holding on to you and you're secure in him. And that's what I want to do to that weak, insecure, discouraged believer. Then again, we have the believer that's kind of rebellious. And maybe they uh, they're in sin. 
Maybe they're in a season of compromise. Maybe it's like the prophet Nathan speaking to King David in his season of sin. And what did he do? Did he put his big arms of the prophet around him and say, oh, don't worry about it, David. You're safe in that. No. He, I hope I'm not speaking disrespectfully here, he kicked him in the rear end. And he said, you better be cautious here, friend. And that's the other pastoral way that I need to speak to people sometimes. I need to put my arm around and say, listen, I don't deny that God has done a work in your life, but you better watch out. You're treading on some dangerous ground here. You need to come back and abide in Jesus the way that he's called you to. This isn't messing around. This is a bad path that you're on. You need to repent. And I just pray that God would give me the wisdom and give you the wisdom because you're ministering to people into similar circumstances. But I pray that God would give us all the wisdom to know when to comfort the afflicted and when to afflict the comfortable. And that's what we can do when we understand these passages aright. Now, in verses 7 and 8, he sort of gives an illustration of the very serious consequences of falling away. Look, he says this in 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. You see the picture that he's using there in verses 7 and 8? Here the rain comes down and it waters ground, but the ground doesn't bear any fruit. So what's the farmer going to do? Run the plow through it. Burn it up. Let's plant something all over again. That ground needs to bear fruit. And friends, what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to assure us of is that the security we need in Jesus is evidenced by, I'm not going to say it's founded on this, but it's evidenced by the bearing of fruit in our life, the transformation that I spoke of before. And so do you know something of that? I wonder if this morning I'm not speaking to some people Well, you kind of thought that being a Christian was just about receiving this ticket and putting it in your pocket. And right now you honestly say, has there been any transformation in my life? Has the Holy Spirit of God come within me? And do I have any desire to live truly as a spiritual man or as a spiritual woman before God? I say, if that's your question, would you please settle it with the Lord? You can really settle it with him very quickly, very easily right here, right now. Let's take a look here at verse nine. But again, understanding this principle that real faith is going to show in the life. The grace that saves my soul is also going to change my life and it will show evidence even unto the end. Anyway, verse nine. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Now, there are some people who take this word of assurance in verse nine. We are confident of better things concerning you to mean that the warning that the writer of the Hebrews just gave wasn't real, that this is almost his way of saying, just kidding. I don't regard it that way at all. I don't think that this is a great big just kidding in the text, but I do think it's placed there for a very important reason. You see, he was confident of better things concerning them because I think the writer of the Hebrews understood that there's more than one reason why someone might fall away, as he mentioned previously. You know, I think there's some people, they fall away 
maybe out of uh, intellectual reasons or, or doubts that come in. Maybe they hear some hotshot skeptic or opponent of Christianity, and maybe they're not equipped to know better answers, to know how to answer somebody. And maybe that makes them say, well, I'm going to turn my back on Jesus. I'm not going to seek God through him anymore. I'm going to go my own way. Maybe it's that. Maybe there's other people who turn their back on Jesus in some way or another because of the moral demands that following Jesus puts on our life. We're aware of this, aren't we? That following Jesus means that the transforming power that he brings into our life is a power that enables us to live a particular way. And it's a power that enables us, not perfectly, but certainly in a general direction, to live according to the morality that God gives us in the Bible. And let's face it, there's some people, they just don't want to live according to that morality. The Bible says that there's a certain way that we should regard sexual morality in our life, and we just need to conform to this. God helping us, we will. That's certain things having to do with intoxicating substances or, or a materialistic lifestyle or pride or whatever. You could just go on and on and make a list. But you understand that there's some people who, at least in appearance, they fall away from Jesus because they don't want to live under those moral demands any longer. But, you know, I don't think that those two groups are really who the writer of the Hebrews most has in mind in this passage. I think the bigger of these groups is not the first one, the intellectual one, not the second one, the moral one. The third one is those who are tempted to turn their back on Jesus just because they're weary and discouraged. They feel the constant pressure that there is in living a life that glorifies Jesus in a world and a culture that doesn't care much for him. And that pressure wears on them in a discouraging way. They're discouraged by the constant battle that they have to live to glorify Jesus in their family, at their workplace, in their neighborhood, whatever it is. And because of that weariness, because of that discouragement, they're tempted to just first loosen their grip on Jesus and then let go, perhaps. And with the writer of the Hebrews, he says, no way, not you. I'm confident better things concerning you. And if I could just say, if I could be bold enough to say it in the Lord, I'll say the same thing to you. No way, not you. You're discouraged. You feel weakened. Perhaps you feel attacked. But today, next week, next month, your whole life, it's not the time for letting go of Jesus or turning back from him in any way. We are confident of better things concerning you. Know the good work that Jesus Christ has begun in you. He's going to continue it until the day that it's perfected. And so for some of you, you need to come back and just say, Jesus, you know, I've been discouraged. Jesus, you know, I've been down. But Jesus, would you please bring that transforming power of the Holy Spirit into my life? I want to press forward. Because I assure you, friends. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. You think you can turn your back on Jesus and get to heaven by a good moral life? You think you can turn your back on Jesus and get to heaven through church attendance? You think you can turn your back on Jesus and I could go on and on down the list, but you get the idea? No. We reorient our compass more than ever, dead reckoning right upon Jesus, our Savior, the only way. And in him... We are utterly, completely secure. Father, that's my prayer for each and every one of us. 
Lord, I, I think of how much you love every person in this room. I think of how patient and merciful you have been and you are with me. I think about the times, Lord, that I've fallen, but thank you, Jesus, I haven't fallen away. Lord, I pray that you'd give renewed energy, that you'd give renewed strength, that you'd give renewed inspiration to your children here, right here, right now, today. Encourage the discouraged. And we take this, Lord, as a real warning, but receive it hopeful that we will, you working in us and through us, continue to the end. We thank you for it all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.